Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And in this episode, we've got some new security flaws for Intel and AMD CPUs that will unfortunately require mitigation patches. These are already underway and will lower the performance of our CPUs. We also have some Linux enterprise shakeup as SUSE, Oracle and more are bending up to create a foundation to provide Red Hat Enterprise Linux compatible source code to the whole community. And we also have some cool updates on KDE Wayland support to finally fix the remaining issues that we still had in the KDE 5 series. So as always, all the links I use to make this show are in the show notes and all the links uh, to support the show if you like it are also in the show notes. So let's get started. So first we have some bad news for our magnificent computers because there are two new severe flaws in Intel CPUs and in AMD CPUs that will both require mitigation patches that will once again lower the performance of these chips. It's in the same vein as the Spectre vulnerabilities that required mitigation patches that could reduce your performance from 5 to 10% depending on the workloads. So for Intel, so these are actually two different vulnerabilities. For Intel, it affects 11th gen and upwards, so 11th, 12th, and 13th, and it's called Downfall. It allows one user to access and steal data from other users on the same computer, including password, including encryption keys, including any personal data, any file. And the issue seems to be that these modern Intel CPUs unintentionally expose hardware registers to the software. So the software can basically go somewhere where it's not supposed to go on the hardware and read what's stored there. So the mitigation patches are already underway for the Linux kernel. Some of them might already be released as you're listening to this. I was going to say reading this as you're listening to this. Uh, And Intel says these can have a performance impact up to 50%. So halving the performance of your CPU. Although they also claim that most workloads will only see minimal performance loss. Uh, I would expect this to only happen in like the 50% reduction to only happen in specific workloads, uh, maybe very intensive ones or, or maybe like specific calculations. But yeah, it seems to be a memory related problem. But yeah, still, that's really bad. For AMD, the flaw is called Inception. And it is in nature similar to the Spectre flaws that we already had to deal with a few years back. Now apparently it's less severe than the Intel flaw because it's only exploitable locally. The attacker needs to have access to your physical device, which is not necessarily the case for Intel as any piece of software could take advantage of that flaw and send the data back. For for AMD you can't do that, you need to have access to the computer. But it still affects the third and fourth Zen generation. So basically most of the currently used Ryzen and Epic CPUs starting with the 5000 series. If you get something earlier than that, there is apparently no need for any mitigation patch. And if you've got a 5000 or 7000 series CPU, then you're gonna need this. Uh, So probably this will affect the Steam Deck as well, if I'm not mistaken, because their APU is based on a 5000 series. Uh, If I'm not, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that's the case. Now here again, mitigation patches have been submitted, although I could not find any numbers for how much performance will be lost here. Now, admittedly, if it's a huge performance loss, 
you could probably do away with the mitigation patches since someone needs to have access to your computer. So if it's a physical desktop that's sitting in your home, you might not want to apply those patches. Generally, these mitigations can be disabled on Linux with a boot option. That was the case for the Spectre of vulnerabilities. You could disable them. It's not recommended to do so anymore because basically modern CPUs have mitigations included in the hardware. So disabling the patches might actually hurt your performance. But for these new vulnerabilities, you can probably disable the Ryzen one on a device that never moves from your home. But on a Steam Deck, on a laptop, you probably need to let them be applied because if you don't, then your device might be at risk if it gets stolen. If someone gets into your house to steal your desktop, you probably have bigger problems than the contents of your desktop, I would say. So yeah, not a great state to be in. Uh, these mitigations, at least on the Intel side, will be sort of mandatory. And uh, yeah, they will reduce your performance, even though like you paid full price for that CPU on your device and they're really <laughs> sort of expensive. So not great. I'm, I'm a bit sad that we have to deal with this again. But yeah, I guess that's the nature of hardware and software. You always find something new to attack and take advantage of. Now, there's something brewing in the enterprise Linux world. Uh, you're probably aware of the Red Hat controversy where they decided to restrict access to the full source code for a specific version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. You can still access that source code if you're a paid customer of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And though you have to sign a license agreement, uh, some terms and conditions, that mean that if you want to take advantage of your full GPL rights of redistribution or using that source code as you see fit, uh, Red Hat will drop you as a customer, which can be seen as an infringement of your GPL rights. You can still piece the source code together uh, using the CentOS stream code by applying certain patches and certain commits, but it's really not that easy anymore. So it was something that really rattled the community and it also spawned a bunch of responses, uh, including, for example, SUSE, which said they would maintain their own Red Hat Enterprise Linux compatible distro when SUSE has never been based on, on Red Hat. So they're going to offer something to the community. And so they banded together now with Oracle and CIQ, which is the company behind Rocky Linux. And they're going to form the Open Enterprise Linux Association or Open ELA. And the goal is to support Red Hat Enterprise Linux compatible distributions for the community. Now, obviously, Red Hat is absent uh, from that foundation because the very purpose is making sure that the source code is freely available for all downstream Red Hat Enterprise Linux based distributions, focusing first on version 8 and 9, but they also plan to add support for version 7 in the future. Now, the open ELA clearly states that this is the result of the recent moves from Red Hat. It's not something completely independent, obviously. And they also said that they welcome other organizations and community members to join the foundation and to contribute, which potentially would include Alma Linux if they decided to walk back uh, the changes that they made. Alma Linux decided that they won't be one-to-one, -one, bug for bug compatible with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, but that they would be ABI compatible, which means any app package for Red Hat would also run flawlessly on Alma Linux, but you won't be able to find the exact same issues, bugs, all the exact same behaviors in every single package. So 
Unless Alma Linux decides to walk back these changes and become a Red Hat Enterprise Linux compatible, like one-to-one -one compatible distro again, they probably won't join the foundation or they might just join it but not make use of the code that is provided. So the open ELA will only provide source code. They won't provide their own full distribution. And they will also add guidelines for downstream distributions to test their builds for compatibility. They will provide a branding kit, some documentation, and some security-related data. Now, I'm thinking they don't provide a full distribution, so they can't be accused of unfair competition, because obviously you've got SUSE in there, which is one of Red Hat's competitors. They're smaller, but they're still pretty big in Enterprise Linux. And so obviously, if a foundation created part, uh, in part by SUSE was providing a full one-to-one -one Red Hat Enterprise Linux compatible distro, they could be accused of unfair competition, they could damage their image. By just providing the source code, they're just saying, we're providing this service for free to the community because we think it's important. So they basically don't hurt their own image by looking like assholes for basically trying to outcompete Red Hat uh, with a free distro but they also provide a great service to the community. So that's really cool. And it also means that the open ELA is uniquely placed to potentially define new standards for enterprise Linux. Uh, at some point, if everyone, if a lot of downstream distros based on Red Hat start really emerging and start really taking market share away from Red Hat, the open ELA would be placed to basically replace Red Hat as the standard. Like, no, you're not Red Hat Enterprise Linux one-to-one -one compatible anymore. You're now Open ELA compatible, which is another standard. And it might basically bury Red Hat and make them irrelevant over time, if things go in their direction, of course. And I'm not even sure that it's their goal. Uh, and they might even, at some point, start offering a new standard enterprise distro if Red Hat doubles down on anti-community behavior. So basically, there's now some kind of, of Damocles sword hanging over Red Hat's head. Because if they decide to do some more anti-community moves, to lock down some more stuff, to restrict access to the source code more, or if they react in any way to this, the open ELA could just say, well, you know what? Yes, we're going to provide a distro. And yes, we're going to completely compete with you uh, for people who don't need a full Red Hat Enterprise Linux to have like a standard distro and, and pull our efforts. And at some point, this standard distro could outgrow Red Hat and maybe become the standard. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting move and it might change things a lot in the enterprise Linux world in the future. Of course, it might also do nothing. We'll have to wait for that uh, and see what happens. Now, of course, we can't forget that Red Hat is also a big contributor to a lot of projects, including GNOME, Systemd, Wayland, and a lot more stuff that is kind of necessary and needed these days uh, to run a solid Linux distribution. And so I'm also going to praise them for this recent move. They're going to hire someone to improve bootloaders and UEFI support on Linux. Uh, so Red Hat has posted a job listing, and they're hiring for their display team, which is weirdly named. It's called the display team, but they work on everything desktop related. They package some applications as RPMs. Uh, they work on desktop environments. They work on bootloaders. They work on Wayland. They work on everything that's related to having a Linux desktop. And so now they're going to also be working on bootloaders. So the work uh, for this job listing will be focused on Grub2 and UEFI support. And they will have to work with upstream to fix bugs, to add features to the bootloader, 
Basically something that will benefit everyone, not just Fedora or Red Hat. And on top of that, the position will also include maintaining and enhancing how Grub2 is implemented in all Red Hat distros, so that's Red Hat Enterprise Linux, CentOS Stream, and also Fedora. And apparently there's also some kind of collaboration aspect with computer and hardware manufacturers, which is something that might have a positive impact on how well Linux is supported on various devices. So if that's something that might interest you, if you know your way around Grub, uh, around UEFI, if you know how to code in C, you can apply for the position. I left a link to it in the description of the podcast, in the show notes. And I think it's an interesting thing because, yes, I, I do crap on Red Hat for their recent move and for some other things that they do that aren't really, like, open source friendly. Uh, but they also do contribute a lot to a lot of projects. And it is absolutely certain that the Linux desktop would not be in its current state if it wasn't for Red Hat. They do invest a lot of time to make Linux better as a desktop. And sure, it's also out of self-benefit, because if Red Hat Enterprise Linux gets, if the Linux desktop gets better, the Red Hat Enterprise Linux distro also gets better. So they benefit from that. But they also do share all this work openly. They work with upstream in the spirit of open source. So yeah, you also have to give them praise when they do good stuff like this. Even though, yes, it's not sexy work. It's the bootloader. It's not like they're developing an awesome Photoshop competitor or whatever. Yeah, sure, it's a, it's a bootloader, but it's still super important. And a lot of people still have issues with bootloaders. So it's nice that this gets supported. It might also like improve stuff like Secure Boot and stuff like that. I think it's really good. Now, there's an interesting report about the state of Wayland support on Plasma 6. Uh, if you're a KDE Plasma user, you know that 5.27, the current stable version, does work really well with Wayland, but there are a few issues here and there that still remain. And it looks like they're going to be fixed mostly in uh, Plasma 6. Uh, first, the biggest one is that Kwin, which is the Wayland compositor for KDE, will no longer take down all the open apps when it crashes or when it's restarted. Uh, that's been an issue for a while now. If, if Kwin crashes or if you quit Kwin by mistake or if something closes Kwin or restarts it, it will kill every single app that is currently open, which means you might lose work. And that's absolutely unacceptable in a production environment. Plasma 6 will fix this problem and so the compositor will restart and all the apps will be restarted or resumed in their current state with their current work, which is really good. Another big issue was dragging tabs out of browsers, dragging toolbars and docs out of applications. Uh, KDE does have a lot of modular applications where you can just drag a toolbar out and have it floating or put it somewhere else in the application. Uh, apps like Krita or, or the Caligra suite have a lot of dockers that are embedded on the side or, or as a toolbar and that you can move around. And, and so moving these on Wayland uh, on Plasma was sort of problematic. It worked. You could drag stuff out, but it just popped out immediately out of the window and you couldn't just leave your, your mouse click on and drag it wherever you wanted. You had to drag it another time. So you have to drag it out of the window, it pops out, and then you have to release the mouse button, re-click on it and re-drag it where you want to put it. It wasn't smooth, it wasn't easy to know what, what was going to happen. And so they're, they're working on fixing that. They created something called the XDG top-level drag protocol. Uh, and that should restore all of this operation. They already worked on implementing this uh, for Google Chrome for dragging tabs. 
uh, on implementing this on various dockers and all, and it looks like the normal state that you would want to use. And I know all of this stuff is not exciting, it's not like new features on Wayland, it's more like catching up with stuff that already worked before, but yeah, having everything that you wanted to do work as nicely as it used to, plus all the security benefits of Wayland, uh, it's, it's just, and the graphics benefits of Wayland as well, is just a good thing. And on top of that, KD developers are working on implementing remote desktop on Wayland. Uh, currently, your only option is using VNC, which is not a great technology. It sends uncompressed images over the network, so you have high latency, you have poor performance, especially at high resolutions. It's, it's really not great. Basic VNC is not that good. And so they want to implement uh, RDP uh, natively in KDE because RDP can use H.264 as a codec to compress the images and make sure that stuff is displayed like smoothly and normally and that a remote desktop is actually usable. Now, obviously, RDP is a Microsoft technology, but it does have an open implementation, which is called free RDP. And so this is what KDE will use. They will implement hardware encoding as well using VA API, of course, there's probably going to be an NVIDIA issue there because I don't think NVIDIA can use a VA API. Not sure. So maybe hardware encoding won't work if you're using a, um, an NVIDIA GPU. Uh, but yeah, still, it's a, it's a good effort. And it will also use the remote desktop portal, uh, which is something that Wayland uses to actually share your screen. They will have to work on that portal to support more features because currently you can just share your screen or not share your screen. There isn't much uh, granularity in what you can do, so they're going to have to improve that. If you want to test this new implementation, there's already an alpha version that you can download as a manual flatpak bundle that you can install. And also, if you want to learn more about remote desktops, what they can be used for and how they work, I have a video on my channel, on my YouTube and PeerTube channel, on that exact topic. So yeah, I'm just teaching you the basics, like how you can make it work to and from any operating system. So for example, uh, remote using remote desktop to share your Linux PC on a Windows device or the vice versa, or using a Mac to, to, to stream your Linux desktop or, or the opposite. Uh, I explained everything, all the protocols and all your options. Uh, so if you're interested in that, the link is in the show notes. And speaking of casting your screen to something else, uh, Gnome had a Google Summer of Code project uh, on that exact topic, on screencasting. Uh, so it aimed to let users cast their screens to other devices straight from the quick settings menu. So there's now a new, well, there will be a small button next to the screenshot icon on top of the quick settings menu in, in the top right corner of your screen in, in GNOME. And clicking it will just bring a list of all the compatible devices that you can just cast your screen in one click. It supports the Miracast protocol and also the Chromecast protocol. So, for example, you could have your laptop playing a movie and you want to cast it to your TV because you don't have another way to put it there. You just click the quick settings menu, you click the screencast button, you select your TV and boom, your movie is now playing on that TV, which is really cool. But it doesn't stop there. It allows you to mirror the display, which is what I just explained. But you can also use a Miracast or Chromecast compatible device to extend your display and basically use that display as an external monitor. You can position it wherever you want. It can be on the top, on the bottom, on the right, or on the left of your current screen, uh, just like a physically connected external display. Now, this is not a 
new feature in GNOME. You could already do that previously uh, by using the Network Display app, but now it will be baked right into the desktop itself, which is, well, way more usable because you have it immediately available. You don't have to know that there is a separate app that you have to download to do that stuff. So I think it's pretty cool. I hope the implementation will be modular. Uh, and by that, I mean, I hope applications will be able to take advantage of this uh, baked-in protocol to screencast stuff directly. So for example, your audio player or a video player or a web browser. If you could just use that app and cast the content, uh, for example, a full screen video that you're playing in Firefox, you want to cast it to your TV, I hope there will be a button uh, or, or at least a, an extension for browsers that let you do that using the baked in implementation or in an audio player, a music player that you could just click and cast the audio directly to your TV. I hope uh, this will be possible uh, right from the get-go or at least in the future as apps get updated. Not sure if that's planned or not, but if that's possible, that could be really, really cool. So I'm not entirely sure if this will make it to GNOME 45, because the project is now completed, but we're really close to GNOME 45's release date. It's a month and a week, basically, uh, before it's out. So not sure if it's going to be included in here, but I guess it's a relatively independent feature that might not break other things. So probably it will be, if not, it's going to be GNOME 46 uh, early 2024. And this will be very very useful to me. I really do hope there's a way for apps to just cast their contents to a display and not casting the whole display. But yeah, it's still a very nice improvement for GNOME. Now we do have some small application news that I found interesting. Uh, first, there's an update to Xernal++, which is an application you might not know about. But if you like taking notes, if you like to edit PDFs manually by adding annotations, adding text, or even just using a stylus, to take handwritten notes. Xernal++ is probably like your best option on Linux. Uh, pretty sure there's nothing that does just as much. And so there's a new release of Xernal++ that will be even more useful for people. Uh, they've been developing it for two years. It's version 1.2.0. And the main thing is new PDF selection tools. Uh, basically, Xernal++ lets you either create a blank note with a canvas, so for example, lines that you can write on, or just a blank page and take notes, but it also lets you import a PDF document. Uh, so you'll have your PDF pages and you can annotate that PDF either manually or with like typed text and with graphics and shapes and whatever else. And so now you will be able to select the text from the PDF itself, either in a line, like you would be selecting text normally in a document or with a rectangle selection. And then you can highlight that text, you can underline it, you can add a strike through, you can copy it, you can basically interact a lot more with the contents of the PDF. You can also use a compass and a square to either draw straight lines and angles or to measure angles, which will be very useful for anything math related. And Xernal++ also got a new latex implementation that brings a bunch of new features like syntax highlighting, word wrap, undo and redo, and a lot more. And the application's performance should also be improved a lot more. And I think there's a new version of GTK being used for the macOS version because it's it's a cross-platform app. It's developed in G with GTK, so it's mostly a native Linux app, but it also works on Windows and macOS. It has versions for both of them. So if you need to take notes uh, with a stylus or, or just like annotating a PDF for a course or stuff like that, 
you absolutely want to give a shot to Xonal Plus Plus. The interface is not the most modern. It doesn't follow the recent GNOME HIG. You've got a menu bar, stuff like that. Might not be the most useful with a stylus, but if you need to annotate PDFs, underline stuff, add notes, or just manually sign with, with your manual signature, your handwritten signature on a document, this is a godsend. And we also have some cool updates coming to Firefox. Uh, it's the next release, version 117, which is in beta. Uh, it will finally get a page translation feature, something that if you're using a Chromium-based browser or Google Chrome or stuff like or Brave or whatever, you already have. But this implementation in Firefox is definitely better looking because all the translation happens on your device. It doesn't send the page URL, the page's content, to an online service that might or might not collect data. It's, it's a black box on Chromium. Uh, probably someone has made some kind of analysis, but I would be very surprised if the URL you're visiting and the contents of the page weren't sent to a service somewhere uh, storing data about you. So Firefox will not store data about you. And when you visit a web page in a language that is not the default one for your system and for Firefox, you will get a small icon in the URL bar that lets you translate it from the auto-detected language to another one that you might want to use. Uh, that's really nice. They don't support as many languages as what Chromium-based browsers will do, but they do plan to expand the list in the future. And apparently it uses the same backend as an extension that already existed for Firefox, which was called Firefox Translations, uh, something that was created by a consortium of universities with EU funding. So it's something pretty cool, and uh, I hope we'll see that soon uh, in Firefox 117. That's something I will make heavy use of, and it will finally bring Firefox up to par with Chromium-based browsers in that regard for multilingual people, or people who just like to browse content in various languages but just don't necessarily speak everything or have basic knowledge of these languages but are not proficient enough to read the full article. Now we also have some driver-related news. Uh, first, there's a new set of patches for the Linux kernel to enable preferred core handling on AMD CPUs. And if you know how CPUs are made, uh, you know there's a lot of binning, like you create CPUs on dies and some CPUs just don't reach the frequencies you want or some cores are just too low powered, so they're disabled. And that's how you get like the lower SKUs for these CPUs. So for example, Intel wants to create the i9s but since not all created CPUs will have the required performance or the right number of cores for i9s, they will be binned into i7s or i5s if their cores are lower performance or if not enough cores are good enough, or even i3s if these cores are just too weak. So AMD does the exact same thing because that's, that's the, the variance in the, in the process of manufacturing CPUs. But it also means that even with the good cores, not all CPU cores can reach the same frequency. Some can reach higher, some can reach the baseline, some can reach lower. And so you need to know which core is the best performer. Uh, so they are basically ranked. Uh, you know that this core is able to reach this frequency, it's the higher performer, this one is the baseline, this one is a little lower. And so the OS will now be able to know that ranking, at least on Linux. I think on Windows uh, it already knows that. And so we'll be able to take advantage of the faster core for more intensive workloads. So basically when, when there's a, an application launching saying that it needs like the best performance available, it will be assigned to the best performing core so your workload is completed as fast as possible. So you will basically have the best performance available on AMD CPU depending on your very own CPU and which core is the fastest. 
Now this will probably land in the kernel version 6.7, not 6.6, .6 because it does require a lot of testing to make sure that everything is all right. And on the NVIDIA front, the necessary changes to the Nuvo kernel drivers are being pulled uh, to support the recent NVK, open source driver for NVIDIA GPUs. So this is a bit of a mess. Basically, you've got the Nuvo NVIDIA drivers which have been around for a while. They are basically the uh, direct rendering manager, The uh, I think that's it, DRM, direct rendering manager, not digital rights management. Uh, they, they are the DRM support that basically talks to the GPU for the Linux kernel, but they also have the Nuvo OpenGL and the Nuvo Vulkan drivers. Uh, so the Nuvo DRM is still going to be used by the NVK driver, which is a newer Vulkan implementation based on the recent documentation NVIDIA open source, which should have higher performance, but it still depends on the base Nuvo driver. And so this NVK driver to reach decent performance still needed a few changes to be made to the Nuvo DRM driver. And so these changes are now being pulled, which means that NVK in the Linux kernel 6.6 .6 should have relatively decent performance. It probably won't be on par with the proprietary drivers, but it's an important step towards that. And like I said previously in another episode, I think 2024 will be the year where there's a decent open source graphical stack for NVIDIA. I think at the end of 2023, we still won't have like reclocking support for NVIDIA GPUs and stuff like that. And, and the new NVK driver will be too fresh and unoptimized. But I think in 2024, we'll have a very usable graphic stack that is fully open source for NVIDIA GPUs. And I think that's really nice. Now, if you're a fan of rolling release distros, there's a new one now, a Rhino Linux. It's now out of beta, and it is basically the continuation of an older project called Rolling Rhino, which was a set of scripts to turn Ubuntu into a rolling release. So now it's its own distro, it's gonna be more stable, it's gonna work better, and it comes with a lot of cool stuff. Uh, there's Packstall, which is an AUR-like package manager for Ubuntu. Uh, they actually use it in uh, Rhino Linux to ship all the customization and all the default applications. And it uses a repo that is handled as a community repo, basically like, like Nix packages is, which means that you can commit a new package to the repo and everyone will be able to enjoy it. And on top of that, they also have a tool called RPK for Rhino Package Manager, which is a package manager that lets you install from a variety of sources like apt, uh, accessing the, the Debian-based Debian packages in the Ubuntu repos. It will be able to access Packstall, of course, but also Flatpak and Snap with one single user interface, which is really cool. Uh, it basically gives an abstraction layer for the user uh, so they don't really have to care where the application comes from. They can just install it. The Rhino Linux uses their own desktop. It's called Unicorn. It's based on XFCE, but it does look a lot better than the vanilla version of XFCE. And it also adds a bunch of tools on top of it. There's Ulauncher, which is like some kind of macOS Spotlight equivalent. You've got an app grid, just like in GNOME. You've got a dashboard that looks like an older GNOME activities view. And you've got a nice looking theme on top of it. So as I already mentioned, the last time I talked about Rhino Linux, it has been a while. It was probably when the beta released in, in March or April. Uh, I don't quite understand uh, why they go with XFCE here, because everything they added is basically GNOME. Uh, they, add a, they add an app script, they add a dashboard, they add a launcher that you can also add as a GNOME extension. Basically everything they did could have been done with one extension and just using GNOME. 
And I'm pretty sure that by using all these plugins on top of XFCE, you're not lighter than GNOME anymore. You're probably using the same stuff. So I, I don't quite know. I think they answered me back then saying that it was still a bit lighter, but uh, I will need to measure it myself because uh, I have my doubts. Now, they also have other tools like a setup wizard to let you configure and customize your system after installing it. And they added something called Rhino Drop, which lets you send files to other computers on the network, much like AirDrop on macOS, with basically the same interface as AirDrop as well. Uh, it looks good. I think I already saw this project previously. It's a web-based thing. Uh, I don't quite remember the name, but uh, I don't think they developed it natively themselves. I think it's based on another protocol that I already saw online. So it does look like a nice distribution. If you like Ubuntu, if you like Debian packages, uh, but you also wanted a rolling release, this is pretty cool for you, I guess. Uh, I will have to try it out uh, and make a review. If you're interested in that, let me know uh, in a comment. You can comment on that podcast in the podcast.thelinuxexp.com uh, website. You can leave me a comment under each episode. So if you want to see a video reviewing Rhino Linux, let me know about this. Uh, it could be an interesting one. Now, we have some more news about the LXD project. It's a container. Basically, it's a project related to containers. Uh, it's LXD is short for the Linux container daemon. It was a canonical project that they had basically given under the umbrella of the Linux containers project, which is a foundation, basically, that regroups a bunch of projects related to Linux and containers. Canonical took back control of that project, rehosted it on their own GitHub, and they also kicked out uh, all the maintainers that didn't work for Canonical, including ex-Canonical employees. Uh, this really didn't sit well with the community, which then forked LXD into the Incus project. Uh, so this project uh, is basically created by the Linux Containers project, which were the previous home of LXD. And they say they want to provide a community-led alternative to LXD that basically is not dependent on Canonical. Because when an open source project gets grabbed again by a company, they start ousting maintainers to only put their own instead. You know they are planning something that you're not going to agree with or that the community will probably not like. Uh, you know it's probably done for a specific purpose. If not, they would have just leave it, left it as a community project. So they forked it. They said they don't just want to make a copy of LXD. Uh, they want to fix some mistakes in LXD that couldn't be fixed in the original project uh, because if they did, it would break backwards compatibility. So you probably know that Incus will not be backwards compatible and will probably drift in the future away from LXD. It's going to become its own thing. And among the maintainers of the project are Stefan Graber and Christian Browner, which are two maintainers of LXD that were kicked out by Canonical, uh, even though I think at least one of them, maybe, maybe the both of them, uh, were ex-canonical employees. And now Incus doesn't have a clear roadmap just yet, but they do know that it will diverge from LXD in the future. It won't just be, as I said, a community fork, like, like a Red Hat Enterprise clone. It won't just be an LXD clone. They're going to have their own thing. And yeah, they're going to apply changes compared to the LXD project from canonical. And yeah, th that's what happens uh, when you're a company and you do your usual corporal crap in the open source on the open source world. You you get forked basically. Uh, it, they fork your project. Uh, you end up splitting the community by 
by trying to grab a project and turn it into like probably a standard, like we're going to grab a LXD and make it a core part of our project portfolio. Uh, we're going to like add some stuff that is canonical only that works better with Ubuntu or whatever. I, I don't quite know what they want to do, but let's imagine it's something like that. When you do this, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot and you're not creating a standard, you're creating two because of course the community is not going to like this and of course they're going to fork the project to keep having control over it. And so in the future, if Incas does well, Canonical will be left with yet another alternative project that isn't purely community-driven and that people just don't like and don't use as much as the other thing that was forked from it. It just creates more fragmentation and, and generally this all stems out of we want to have this project be the standard, but for that we need control over it to really push it in the direction we like. And generally the direction the company likes is not the direction the community wants. And so yeah, you end up having a fork and you end up splitting the community, creating more fragmentation. And the end result is either your corporal project dies or another standard that is proprietary emerges and takes the crown from the community-led one. It's, it's the usual story and it kind of sucks. So thanks Canonical for do, doing your usual corporal shenanigans and forcing the community into a fork. Nice. Okay, now we're going to finish this with the gaming news. So first, uh, cool news about the Steam Deck. It looks like Valve will offer refurbished Steam Decks now at significantly lower prices uh, than brand new models. The entry level, which is the 64 gigs model, is $319 refurbished. So I think it's about $100 less. Yeah, the entry level model is $399, so it's $80 less. And the 512 gigs model with its anti-glare glass is $519 refurbished compared to $649 brand new. So you're saving $130 bucks, uh, by buying it refurbished. And all these refurbished units should function as brand new devices. They've been tested thoroughly, the batteries checked, the performance is the right one, uh, the accessories are the right one. They might have a few cosmetic issues because they are basically units that were sent back after very minimal use. And so you might have like a, a small scratch, you might have a small blemish on the case, but generally that's not going to be an issue. And in my experience, most refurbished products just generally have absolutely no problem. They will also come, well, I don't know from Valve, but from other products that I've bought uh, from other companies, like if a refurbished unit is generally just a brand new unit uh, in terms of experience and how it looks. Uh, and these devices also come with the full warranty that a brand new Steam Deck would have. So yeah, if you want one, but you found it a little bit too expensive, and if you're okay with a potential small scratch or, or ding somewhere, but you're not even sure that it's going to be there, it's a good way to save some cash. Now, we also have some news uh, from Intel, a, a funny thing, basically. Uh, the latest Harry Potter game, you might not like it for reasons other than the game being bad, because apparently it's not that fun, like I've seen reviews saying that it's a ball fest. I just didn't want to play it anyways, because I'm not that big of a Harry Potter fan. There were also some controversies over, of course, JK Rowling and the Harry Potter universe. I won't go into that. So this game wasn't playable on Linux using an ARC GPU. But Intel engineers managed to make it run because they just conceal the fact that you're using an Intel GPU and this makes the game run. Uh, basically, the issue was due to the fact that the game can use XCSS, which is uh, Intel's upscaling technology. They're equivalent to FSR or DLSS. And this thing just crashed on Linux because Intel doesn't have good XCSS support on Linux or maybe not support at all, uh, even through DXVK. 
And so by just hiding the vendor of the GPU, XCSS, well, the, the vendor of providing the Vulkan driver, uh, XCSS isn't used anymore and the game worked. So basically the way to make the game work is to tell the game, no, 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 don't you, don't you worry. It's not an Intel GPU, you're running on other hardware, you can run fine, and then it runs. Uh, basically they're saying, yeah, you want to use an Intel technology, but it crashes, so let's say you're not an Intel GPU. It's weird, like it's stupid, and one would think that the best solution would have to be uh, to fix XCSS support on Linux or through DXVK, but I guess this would have taken more time. It's just a fun tidbit. And we also have Overwatch 2 that landed on Steam, as Blizzard promised some of their games would. And it immediately works on Linux and the Steam Deck. Uh, Valve actually included an update from Proton Experimental a few days before the release, uh, so everything would be nice and supported. You do need a Battle.net account, of course, because if you want to play online with other players, you're gonna want compatibility, so Battle.net. And there is no pre-built shader cache, so you will definitely get some stutters when you're loading a new map. But the game seems to work at medium details on the Steam Deck, according to Gaming on Linux, which is actually really cool. So it's nice to see. Personally, I have zero interest in Overwatch 1 or 2 or any competitive online shooters, basically. I don't find them fun at all. Uh, but I would like Blizzard to bring uh, some of their other games uh, to, to Steam. For example, Diablo 4, which might finally get me to buy it and play it, as everyone has told me it's pretty cool. But also maybe games that I already own uh, on, on Battle.net, but that I would much prefer having on Steam so I can install them easily on my deck and, and benefit from like control support and stuff like that. Uh, so maybe the Diablo 2 remaster, Diablo 3 and stuff like that would be really, really cool. So this will conclude this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to learn more about a specific topic, I left all the links in the show notes. If you like this show and you want to support it, uh, which you probably do if you reach this point in the show, you can support the show by clicking any of the links in the show notes as well. And as always, thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!